this morning, as we continue in Matthew, for the next couple of three Sundays, we are going to be walking through, not in any depth and detail, but we're going to be walking through probably some of the deepest waters that people walk through as a church. Not because of the deep theological significance, because there are other passages, especially in the first chapter of Colossians and in other areas and in Ephesians and in the Gospel of John, which or mightily deep passages of theology pertaining to the person of the Son of God and the essential work and significance of Him as our Messiah. But these are deep passages only because people's need to know has overcome so many and has overridden God's purpose in giving them that the curiosity and the, if you would, supposed need to know the specifics and the details of when the Lord is returning. And that has become, in many circles in the church, an over-realized, over-emphasis Notice I'm saying overemphasis. I'm not saying that it is not an emphasis. Because on the other side of it, I, with a very, very, very limited understanding or knowledge of what many churches do, I don't know what most of them do because I'm not there, but I have been involved with a couple here or there. There is an underemphasis of the return of the Lord. And so, in one church, they never talk about Jesus' return. It's just never mentioned unless it happens to be in a scriptural reference. In another church, almost everything about that church is when and the signs of the times and who the uh, Antichrist is going to be and is it the Pope. No, it isn't the Pope. It's obviously Donald Trump, and it's not Donald Trump. It's whatever. And so, those are the issues But between the two, I believe there is a message from God, which is the central message of these two chapters in particular, and is the message that actually does underpin the teachings of the apostles in the epistles. And that is this, the one who has come is coming back. That's the emphasis. And if you look, for instance, at 1 Thessalonians, just as an example, you will see that Paul ends each of the five chapters with a reference to the return of Christ. 1 John 3, when he says, oh, what love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the the children, the sons of God, and such we are. And then he talks about, and when we see him, we shall be like him. 
And everyone who has this hope in himself, what? Purifies himself. And so as a church, we need to have our two eyes on two truths, not one eye more on one truth and the other eye less or more on another truth because then we can't walk wisely. We need to have the eyes of our souls and spirits on the here and now. And we also, at the same time, simultaneously need to have our eyes, the eyes of our souls, on the return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? So there's going to be a lot of controversy, and there is. We're not going to go into all the details, and we're not going to make any definitive statements in here. Because here's what we believe. I have, and I would just be typical, I suppose, several books in my library which deal with the return of the Lord in reference to the tribulation and the rapture and the pre-tribulation and the mid-tribulation and no tribulation and the amillennial and the premillennial and the whatever millennial and all of that. I have books on these. And the ones who write these books, who believe they understand, and there is understanding there, that the Scriptures teach there is no literal thousand years, but that's a symbolic time frame. There is a literal thousand years. There is a rapture. There is no rapture. The rapture is in the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. There is no seven-year tribulation. The rapture is in the middle of the seven-year tribulation. And so all of those are from genuinely saved people who believe what they believe, hopefully because they believe they see the evidence in the Bible. And there is evidence all over the place of the various views. So here's what I ask, and we did this when we taught Revelation. Whatever your view is, and some of us, sorry, some of us, us, you, don't have a real view. But whatever your view is, especially if you hold a view passionately, and you should hold your views biblically and passionately. Can we answer this question? Is there anyone in the class whose view of eschatology, the last events, the end days, the return of Christ, is your eschatological view, are you so certain of it, that you would place your eternal salvation on the absolute accuracy of your view. How many of you would do that? That you were so certain that you were right, that you would say, my salvation depends on my absolute rightness. How many of you? Would you raise your hand? So what we can say is this truthfully. We don't know. Isn't that freeing? So if Steve Zaringer has a view that clashes with Berta's view. That's okay to have the two views and to discuss them. But where the danger is that the distinction between views can begin if we're not careful because of the flesh 
to create distinctions between the two people and create opposition and separation, and that's not God. Jesus has given us this information. The apostles give us these pieces of information for one, for several purposes. One central purpose is this, that in the giving of them, this, these revelation, this revelation would unite us and not separate us. Amen? And so can we begin these two chapters, which we're not going to take very much time in them. Can we begin it this way? Discuss all you want. Research all you want. Challenge in a kind way all you want. Okay, Gwen, you see this? Where do you see that? How do you understand that? Challenge it not from the perspective, I'm going to show you, you don't know anything, but show me something that maybe I don't know and I haven't seen in your perspective. But let us not allow the enemy to use the very word of truth that unites us to begin to separate us because of the flesh. Amen? Can we be that way? Okay, fine. Let's start. Chapters 24 and 5 contain what is called the Olivet Discourse. And the reason is Jesus enters what? The, what? The Garden of Olives. That's why it's called the Olivet Discord. Where do we get the word Olivet? Well, it says olives. Okay. In which Jesus enumerates, discusses the signs and the events associated with his return. These are the two great chapters, at least in Matthew. They're different chapters in Luke and in Mark. The Gospel of John, basically John doesn't deal with this. And so as we begin to consider these two chapters, let's be sure not to put ourselves in the context. Let's be sure to put ourselves in the context of the disciples. Let's pretend that we are the disciples and that Jesus is answering their two questions that they will ask and that he's answering these questions to us and giving us the answers. And we're Jewish men and women. We live in the context of the first, almost, you know, the first century, you know, right before the first century. First century begins with the resurrection, but you understand that. And we are Jews and we understand things from a Jewish perspective. And Jesus is going to give us some explanation, not definitive and absolute daily, five days here, six days there, and make it so clear. But he's going to talk to us in terms of our Jewishness. And he's not going to be giving any information that seeks to confuse us. Somebody said, why doesn't Jesus make it clear? He does. The clarity isn't deficient on his side. The clarity is deficient on our side. So let's not be too preoccupied with overemphasizing these issues. Amen? And I don't actually think we are a church that does. I will say this about us as a church. And when I say this, I'm, I'm one of the principal people who speak in this church. Would you agree with that? Now, that doesn't mean I'm more important. I just happen to do a lot of speaking in the church. My wife would tell you that I speak very little at other times, and I'm not a very loquacious person, and I don't talk a whole lot about things that I don't know anything about. I just like to express my opinion about everything. But given that, I believe there is some weakness in this church theologically. <gasps> Did you know that? But there's weakness theologically in how many churches? Every church. And I believe one of the areas where we could really use some strengthening is this area of eschatology. 
is this area of eschatology. Because the way we live today is based in the day of Christ's return. And what we do today is in preparation for one day, that day. And that day should be the controlling, overarching, atmospheric, motivating period or day or relationship that governs and, and uh, infuses us for this day. Amen? Yes. Because you know, when you were kids, if there is a principal in the school, hopefully you did a whole lot that you didn't want to do or whatever because you didn't want to go to the principal's office. <laughs> Let's start. Hopefully we'll get through what I have today. We're going to be in Matthew 24, 1 through 14, hopefully. Jesus, first one, Jesus left the temple and was going away with his disciples and came. Remember, he has just said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou who, you know, stonest the prophets. And what, how many times would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, yet you would not? Remember, he has woed the Pharisees, woe unto you, those seven woes of indictment, that polemic, that in a judgment against the leadership. The leadership's misuse misuse of Judaism, which was God's method of saving and making his people fit for his presence under the old covenant until the old covenant was fulfilled. And so he who is going to fulfill the covenant is here and woeing these men for turning the old covenant, which was God's grace to his people at that time, into a man-centered works system that was antithetical to God's purpose. And so Jesus leaves the temple going away, and his disciples come to the point, come to point out the buildings of the temple. They're walking out, and Jesus, did you notice the columns? Did you notice that? And when Herod built that, oh, beautiful. And look at this, this courtyard and the, the beautiful, beautiful temple. It's a wonderful, wonderful complex. We talked about it a little bit a couple of weeks ago. And so they begin to comment on the beauty of the temple. And there's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus takes the opportunity to give them some information. But Jesus answered them. He says, you see all these buildings? How beautiful they are and how wonderful and how much they represent God's presence on earth and how much they represent and stand for the old covenant and they represent and stand for God's work among his people all these years. Do you see this? What a beautiful place. Do you see all of it? He says, truly I say to you, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. <gasps> oh, heavens. Can you imagine? We're all Catholic people, and we all live in New Orleans. And we're taking a tour, and we're at the Basilica. You remember, you know where the Basilica is? St. Louis Cathedral is now a Basilica. And we're looking at this St. Louis Cathedral. Incredible. And the tour guide, and we're saying how beautiful it is, and look at this, and look at that. And isn't it amazing that they could construct something, et cetera? And the tour guide said, you see all this? There's coming a day when none of this, it will be all torn down. <gasps> oh, my heavens. Or if you're in England and you're looking at Westminster Abbey, 
this incredible abbey that is, that, uh, you know, William the Conqueror is crowned King of England on Christmas Day in 1066. I mean, this thing has been around a few years. It's been at large. And the tour guide says, in a few years, this whole thing will be nothing. Everything will be torn down. David, you would be like, oh, what would, what would your response be? When? When is this going to happen? What's going on here? This was horrible news for these men and women. This was horrible news. You see, even though the temple was the most sacred place for the Jews, because if we tear down the temple, what about the sacrifices? What about forgiveness? Remember Leviticus 17, without the shedding of blood, what? There is no remission of sin because the life is in the blood. If we tear down the temple, what about God? You see, this is bigger than just an architectural comment. When Jesus says that, he is saying to these men, and they understand it, the entire Jewish religion, the entire old economy, the entire Old Testament, the old covenant means of God to make his people fit for their presence will be destroyed. This is more than just a couple of bricks and blocks. This is the elimination of an entire life, an entire social order, an entire means of God among his people. See it bigger than what it is that a couple of stones are going to be torn down. Oh, we can rebuild that, Raul. I mean, you know, we can do that. Why must the temple be destroyed? It must be destroyed. The temple was, and we, we're going to cover a little bit of ground here, not as much as in your notes because I took a lot of this out realized we've already talked about it. The temple was the centerpiece of God's old covenant means of making his people fit for his presence and worship. Can we get that? When you saw that Jewish temple, you were looking at God's very means of declaring his presence for worship among his people. And in that temple, through the mediation of a high priest, sacrifices were made. And one sacrifice in particular on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, was made for the remission or the removal of sin for that previous year, thus making the nation fit for the pres presence of God for the next year. Amen? Are you with me? That's what that temple represented. But now the time had come for God to fulfill his eternal purpose in the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman is finally here to do what 1 John 3, 8 says. For the Son of God has appeared for this purpose. For what purpose? To destroy the works of the devil. And what is that primary work of the devil? The infliction because of the curse that God lays on mankind and on the cosmos because of sin, the infliction of the penalty of death. And in Hebrews 2.14, the Word talks about Satan's ability to control and dominate and weapon man through this issue of death, for the fear of death all their lives. And Jesus breaks that fear 
breaks that domination at the cross. So the seed of the woman, you remember the seed of the woman is promised in Genesis 3, what? 15. The seed of the woman shall be bruised as to his heel, but he shall crush Satan as to his head, which means this, that Jesus or the seed of the woman will be bruised. He's going to be inflicted with a wound in his body, but in the process, he is going to crush the authority of the enemy or of the serpent. Do we get that? That's what 3.15, immediately after the fall, God says, I am sending a deliverer, a redeemer for my people. And how is he going to do it? Will you see that in Genesis 3.21? What does 3.21 say? And what does the Lord do? He sees Adam and Eve hiding behind some fig leaves or some, some kind of leaves there. And what does he do? Psst. No. He covers them with the skin of an innocent animal. A, an, 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 boy, it's difficult to talk. An innocent animal is slain. The blood of an innocent animal is shed. And the result of that is that the people of God, Adam and Eve, therefore all of God's people who are in Adam and Eve, are then symbolically clothed with the result of the shedding of the blood. And what is clothed? Their nakedness. Nakedness in the Bible so often means the lack or the removal of the glory. Remember in Laodicea, you are what? Naked. It doesn't mean they're running around without any clothes on, but because of the way you are living, you are walking and living as if you are not those who are glorifying God. So the skin of the animal covers that nakedness, gives them then, if you would, the glory of God, the righteousness of Christ. That is what's being symbolized there. And so the seed of the woman is going to come, and how is he going to deliver his people? Through the shedding of his own blood. You see, there's the gospel. The gospel doesn't begin in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When does it begin? When does the gospel begin? Genesis 1-1. Oh, well, you know. I love it when the theologians say, the Proto-Evangelium, the beginning of the gospel is in Genesis 3. Well, I understand what they're saying, but I would present to you that the beginning of the gospel or the initiation or the announcement of the gospel, which is what? God with us is Genesis 1-1, specified and given to us in a language that we begin to understand in Genesis chapter 3, especially with what verse? Genesis 6, and they ate, and he ate. Genesis 7, he what? They began to find themselves naked. They hid themselves. And what does that say then? God came down, and what did he say? Where are you? He began to search for his people. He began to put into action that which he knew and planned for and anticipated in Genesis 1-1. You say, the continuity of the Word of God. That goes beyond what I'm talking about this morning. 
So Jesus coming to the temple is the announcement that he himself is the seed of the woman. And by the way, the seed of the woman is a word that promised, Abraham is promised, in thy seed all the nations will be blessed. <clears throat> you remember there are various chapters, various verses, especially in chapter 12, verse 7, all the nations of the world or the nations of the you know, will be blessed in your seed or in your descendant or in your offspring. Your Bible may say one or the other. And so Paul, taking that up under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says in Genesis, Galatians, what, 3, 16, and when the Lord said to Abraham, in thy seed, he didn't say seeds as pertaining to many, but to one seed pertaining to Christ. So we had the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul telling us, 3.15 of Genesis is Christ, is Christ. And so he's the one who will come and establish the new covenant in his blood. Remember Jeremiah 31, 31. And so the disciples want to know what? When? When? And what we're going to find in the next several verses is this, and I hope this is in your notes, that Jesus' emphasis in these predictions is not to date his return, but to state his return. Do we get that? <clears throat> I think it's very significant to get that. The emphasis, it doesn't mean Jesus didn't give us any answers, didn't give us any dates and times, obviously not. But the emphasis or the burden of the Son of God for his people is not upon the date of his return because he's not telling us the date, did he? He didn't say, you know, in the year 2018 when this happens and Russia does that and the Chinese do that. He didn't do that. He says, I'm not as interested in the date as to state my return. So the emphasis for the church is on the statement that he's returning rather than the dating of it. Verse 3, <clears throat> and he sat on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately. He says, they said, they asked two questions. When would these things be? That's the first question. And Jesus will answer them in the first part of this. And then the second question, what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Now, why are they surprised? Because you see, what they have done here, and typically so, they have understood this. The Messiah, when he returns, is going to bring about the new age. We know that. The Old Testament is filled with that day, that day, that day, the day of the Lord's vengeance, the day of the Lord's returning, filled with it, especially if you read Zechariah and Daniel. But they understood the Messiah to come, as, as we said before, a political and socially, you know, concerned Messiah and to give them freedom from Rome and a great life here on earth. But they also understood that maybe the temple will continue. There was no indication the temple would be torn down and the sacrifices would be stopped. And so when they hear this, all of a sudden they're trying to figure out, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? Does this mean that you're going to destroy it all? And come? They, they're confused, so they need to know, just like we are. And so the astonished disciples asked, when are you coming back? Verse 4, and Jesus answered them, first of all, look at his answer. And the church needs to hear this today. Look at the first part of the answer. 
You see, if we're not careful, we misuse the Word of God. How many of you know this, that James 4, 7 says this, resist the devil and he will flee from you? It does not say that. It does not say that. And to say that James 4, 7 says that, you are misunderstanding and misquoting and misusing the Bible. It doesn't say that because he makes three statements which are interconnected. And without one of these, the other two are invalid. He's making one statement but in three parts. So what does he say? Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. That's what it says. And so often we take these verses and we forget the major part, the underpinning part of the verse and of the emphasis, and we go right to the thing that we think is exciting. But the more important, exciting part is first, Bob, submit yourself to God. That's the burden of that statement from James. And so what is Jesus' burden here? His burden is answered first in his statement in verse 4. You want to know the times and the signs and all of that? And he doesn't say you're wrong. He didn't say that. But he does say this. When considering these things, don't be what? Deceived. Don't be deceived. He's just talked about deception in these other chapters and verses. So what does that mean? That we can take these signs and times and these passages from Jesus, these passages from Daniel, these passages from Ezekiel, these passages from Zechariah, and we can use them in a way that Jesus himself is not intending us to use them, to get down to the very specifics and begin to name the accurately the activities of our day in order to say we know the events and here it is and how it is. And he said, look, don't be deceived. Don't misuse my word. Get the emphasis of why all of this is in the Bible. It's to not date my return, but to what? State my return. Because he continually, and you'll see in these parables which follow, if the thief knew, I mean, if you knew, you would have done this, and this is not, and you're not ready here. And You see, there is a quality. I'm going to get through this some way. There is a quality. Two things. We must get together equally and simultaneously and be comfortable with both. Jesus wants us to know. But he doesn't want us to know definitively. Because not knowing completely is good for us. Can you say amen? Because if we know absolutely, there are going to be some believers who are going to take advantage of that. We're not, we're to know, but not what? Definitively. We're to know, but could this be the day? Could it be while this old man speaks? Could it be tomorrow? Could it be that if Donald Trump is reelected, that has to be it? Or if one of the Democrats are elected, that's it. Nancy Pelosi becomes queen, king of England. Uh, sorry, president of the United States. It's gone. It's gone. We're all over. We're all over. You know? 
If they tear down the wall, it's all over. If they build the wall, it's all over. If we let these people in the country, it's over. Jesus has returned. If we keep them out, it's over. Jesus, do, do you see what I'm talking about? Way too much emphasis on everything except the fact of his return. And so, Jesus is going to give them non-events that are preceding his return in order to protect them from the deception of being led astray by spurious teachings about his return. Did you get that? He is giving them non-events, not in order to say, look, check them off, check them off, one, two, three, we're almost there, seven, eight. <laughs> no, it's to keep you and me from being deceived by spurious teachings and spurious emphases. What are these events? Number one, verse 5, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead me as, many astray. Number two, and you will, verse 6, you will hear wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. So you see, if North Korea attacks South Korea, that doesn't mean the end is here. <laughs> it doesn't mean that. It could be, but it doesn't prove it. Number three, Verse 7, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. I'm 7a. 7b, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Now, he stops for a moment in verse 8. He stops. And he says, after speaking about these events, Jesus then pauses and explains that they are just, these are just the birth pangs. Now, the birth pangs to a Jew was a metaphor to indicate an indeterminate period of time of trouble that preceded the end of the age. That's what it meant to Jews. And here we have a Jewish rabbi speaking to his Jewish audience about Jewish events. Isn't that the context flow? We're there, but there in the spirit, if you would, or there, not physically, but spiritually we're there. But he's speaking to them using what they understand. Birth pangs were a Jewish metaphor to indicate an indeterminate period of time or trouble that preceded the end of the age. Then he continues. Five, the fifth one out of nine, verse nine. <clears throat> then, then at that time, at that time, following this, during the same activity. While this is going on, this is also going on. They will deliver you up to tribulation or to trouble or distress, depending on how your version gives it, and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Six, the sixth sign, verse 10, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Again, that's the result. The verse 9, then, is a result of verse, sorry, verse 10 is a result of verse uh, 9. You see, this is going to happen, and then all of a sudden the other thing is going to happen. You're going to start betraying one another and falling away. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, those who are falsely, obviously, are claiming to be Jesus or the Messiah. Number 8, verse 12, and because the lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. Verse 13 is an aside again, an explanation. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Who? What? What does it say? The one who? You, you see, we don't believe in once saved, always saved, under any or no condition. 
People say, do you believe once saved, always saved? Well, I don't even know what you're asking me in that question. Because we were never saved without condition. We were always saved by a couple of conditions. Oh, you thought it was unconditional. First, it was conditioned on the cross of Christ and the resurrection. And then it was received by the condition or the activity of faith. And that which is purchased at the cross on our behalf without anything that we can do and given to us without anything that we could ever do to purchase it, given as a gift of faith, and now generates in us the desire and ability to be maintaining. Therefore, now we as believers are maintained by walking in faith. Correct? Walking in faith maintains us in Christ. We don't believe that once you're saved, it doesn't matter how you live. That's not what the Bible teaches us. And walking in faith for how long? For how long? All the way. For how long, Jim? All the way until you get to the end. That's how long. Our life in Christ is maintained by the power of the Holy Spirit as he gives us the power, the ability to have faith as a gift of God, and he maintains that in us through our cooperation and obedience to that gift of faith. Amen? And how long must that gift of faith last? Until we see Jesus face to face, and then we no longer need any faith. How do you know that? 1 Corinthians 13, 13 tells me that. Until you get to the end. Or suppose I stop believing. Will I be saved? Well, go ahead and stop and let us know. But for me and my house, we're not stopping, are we, D? Bert and I are continuing until the end. How many of you are going to continue to the end? Yes. And your hope and your power is based in Christ, not in you. And verse 14. And I think this is, this is, I think, the most definitive statement about the return of Christ in these nine issues. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed. Well, what? Will be proclaimed through Alpha. That's a proclamation. Through Beta. Through school of the word, through preaching on Sunday morning, through witnessing in the streets, through, you know, friendship evangelism, et cetera, et cetera, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I've shared this before, my personal opinion, I could be wrong, but I think I'm right. And you have opinions that you think are right, that's, therefore you share them, amen? I believe the definitive event that must happen according to God's will. These are not events that control God. These are events that God has decreed will happen under his control, that he has decreed as those events that signal the return of Christ. These events do not control Christ. Amen? Okay, let's get that. Well, Jesus can't return until... 
Say what? So what? I believe that God has decreed this, and you will understand it, until the very last one of the elect is saved. Whoever he or she is, wherever he or she is, when that happens, I believe then we will see and hear. Okay? We're going to see and hear Jesus return. See, I don't believe God is waiting for China to do something or for Putin to do something or for anybody else to do anything. I believe that as the Holy Spirit is out gathering the people of God, he knows the last one. And when he finally comes to the last one and says, you're saved, he applies that salvation, that was at the cross, according to God's foreknowledge. I believe that signals. And the Holy Spirit, if you would, says to the Father, let's get going on this now. Come on down, Lord Jesus. Now, these nine events, I was going to go into detail here, but I'm not going to. These nine events all occurred to some degree in some fashion before 70 A.D., These events that he gives there are time events that occur by 70 A.D. What happened in 70 A.D.? Remember the Roman general Titus who became Caesar, sieged Jerusalem, and finally entered Jerusalem and sacked and destroyed the city and the temple. That's when it happened. He sieged them for a few years before, and then finally in 70 A.D. they went in, and that was the end of the temple, and that was the end of the city at that point. Why? Why? You see, Jesus prophesied these signs and events as the precursors of the same kinds of events that would occur before his return. Those events are not isolated to that time period, but occur then, and he lists them then to say this, that those kinds of events will continue to occur in history, sometimes increasing, sometimes decreasing, sometimes more at one time and others less at another time as history moves toward the great day of his return. And so he gives us a panorama, say it again, panoramic view of what that day will, sorry, what that period of time looks like, and we're in that period of time. These kinds of events would signal his soon return so that the church would live in readiness, not being deceived or seduced by the events on earth, but looking for the great event of his visible return. So our looking is not to the events politically and socially and economically. That's not where we're to be looking. We're to be looking up to the where? Eastern sky for his return. That's where do we be looking. You see, these events have been given to us so that when we experience them, we will not be shaken. We will not be shaken. The only problem for us is what? Still in your mind is what? When? When? Well, let me tell you when. I had the answer for you. 
Write it down. This is when Jesus comes back. And you'll notice it won't be any political statement. Jesus comes back when God the Father releases him. That's all we can tell you, isn't it? So when you read the books and hear the movies and watch that, oh, fine. Don't argue whatever. But remember this, the definitive answer is when God the Father says to the Son, now you can go. It was the same sending of the Son to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now I have prepared the times. I have prepared a woman. Now you can be conceived in the humanity of Jesus. Now you can come back. Amen? So what? The fact of the matter is this, church. He who has come, he who has died and raised, he who has been exalted in the heavens, and he who has sent the Holy Spirit, he's coming back for us. Whether we are alive to see it or not is not the point. The point is this, and we are going to ever be with the Lord. Amen? That's the emphasis of what Jesus is talking about. See you next week.